Yeah. Yeah. Hook grown, hook grown. No moms, I'll be the greatest the hoods ever known. That's my home, like a tribe to me. And they fuck with the craft that I own. They know when to come around, know when to leave me alone. They know how to pick me up and boost me to the throne. Hook grown, hook grown. No moms, I'll be the greatest the hoods ever known. Grown, no moms, I'll be the greatest the hoods ever known. No moms, I'll be the greatest the hoods ever known. What up, what up, what up, y'all? It's your girl, Daughter of Contrast, here. And um, it's nice to talk to you all again. Uh, this is episode 112. Um, tell everyone. Um, just so you know, I'm going to tell you at the top of the show, Vaughn and I spoil Candyman for everyone. So if you've not seen it yet, um, I recommend you do not listen to What's the Word with Vaughn until you do so. Um, unless you don't care about spooky season, then I don't know how we're friends. Uh, <laughs> but that's besides the point. Um, let's just get into the episode. I just wanted to, you know, start with like my version of a trigger warning here <laughs> on a grown aesthetic. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, it is September. We are excited. Uh, things are anew. Um, and we're going to start with uh, Tag the Artist, as always. Um, so this month's Tag the Artist is going to Raphael Pavarotti. Pavarotti? Anywho's. <laughs> Y'all know I ain't good at pronouncing people's names. Oh, it's one of my biggest, weakest points. Anywho, um, you might have, uh, this name might be feel, sound familiar to you. Um, but let's just go a little back background of who Raphael is um and where I'm gonna pretend like we're so cool we're on a first name basis because I don't really know how to pronounce his last name properly so that's what I'm gonna go with all right so uh Raphael was born in the Brazil's Amazon rainforest in 93 so he's just a year older than me um he did a lot of photography um, where he made collaborations with his young friends um, who pooled their money together to purchase a film shoot camera along um, the beaches. So um, it was something that he's been doing since a very young age. At uh, 16, he left his remote hometown and committed to establish a professional practice in the urban centers of fashion and media. So why am I talking about Raphael? And why is Raphael our uh, Tag the Artist? Um, that is because he, actually let's go a little bit more into his bio before I get into what I'm talking about him for. So <laughs> Pavarotti is passionate about addressing um, the imbalance of black representation in fashion and bordered historical narratives, expressing his ambition to help underrepresented populations to find equitable representation in the future. He has said, much of what I do today is for the next generation to come and those who have not been born yet. Um, his work is beautiful as a collective, but again, why am I talking about him? <laughs> um, because you probably have seen, uh, Days Magazine just dropped, um, their latest cover and that is with the Rihanna. Um, this is a beautiful shoot. Uh, she is literally wearing a joint costume and the bitch looks, uh, phenomenal. 
Um, you gotta love Riri, uh, and you gotta hate how beautiful she is constantly. I mean, she's flawless. Flawless, let me tell you. Um, and this, uh, Days Magazine, this Days shoe is just gorgeous. I love, love, love the image of her in all white and the two, um, darker gentlemen, um, beside her in black suits. The contrast is beautiful. Y'all know I love a good contrast. Um, so if you have not seen, um, this beautiful, beautiful shoot, get into it. Um, it's, it's gorgeous. She has like this beautiful, like, uh, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe this. It's essentially um, Marge hair from The Simpsons. Um, yeah, um, but black. And um, she has a fitted on top, a Louis Vuitton fitted. It's really, it's breathtaking. It's a breathtaking shoot. It's so Rihanna. And I am so happy to have found the work of Raphael um, through this, um, through this shoot. So again, if you choose to, uh, engage in media and you really enjoy photography, I very much encourage you to check out who is for, um, photographing your favorite um, artist um, and know those artists' names because they're doing amazing work. All right, let's get into our FUBU of the month. Our For Us By Us is going to the Teen Empowerment Boston. They have two locations. There's a Roxbury site and a Dorchester site. The Do um, Roxbury site's on Warren Street. Um, the Dorchester site is on Balfour Street. Uh, you can check those out. I have the all, the full the full address in the show notes, so you can check that out there. Um, why are we highlighting this? Well, it is September and it's the start of the new school year. And um, I will get gushy towards the end when I start talking about my students and how much I love them and how happy I am to have seen them this week. Um, but this is an amazing program and their mission is to employ, train and empower youth to in collaborations with adults to create peace, equity and justice. And um the Teen Empowerment is hiring youth in Boston and Somerville, as well as uh, um, Rochester, Matt, um, Rochester, New York. Um, and you can work in the afternoon after school to create positive change in your community and earn money seeking artists, activists, people with ideas and people with questions apply today. So if you have teens in your life and you want them to get a job after school, um, this is an amazing program and it's really about not only like youth program development, implementation and engaging curriculum and training design and leadership and development and so much more. Um, it's about, you know, collaborations and it's about, uh, you know, getting s students to understand, um, their own voice and to inspire, lead and empower themselves to, you know, achieve justice and peace through their lives and through their futures so um shout out to teen empowerment boston you can check them out at teenempowerment.org um all the information will be in the show notes <laughs> all right let's get all word out the straight so um the election is this month or the primaries um is this month so um, it is very fitting that 
Um, the mayoral candidates are out there trying to, you know, really get their voices out there. Um, and arts and culture hasn't been typically the top line items for city budgets in the past. Um, but it is clearly important to all of our candidates now. Um, I think that Kim Janey has done an amazing job already implementing and highlighting the importance of the arts and youth arts in the city. Um, and I think the other ones are kind of just um, noticing how <laughs> Boston is uh, responding to that and we're responding really well. Um, I just want to say uh there's a lot of folks running for mayor this year um it's great to see all these people of color and all of these women running um but i would say <laughs> as a podcast and as who i am i completely endorse <laughs> kim janey um i would say that the podcast definitely endorses kim janey here um and i would say that for many reasons but my main reason is, you know, Kim Janey has a, a hoodness about her that is untouchable by other, um, the other candidates. Uh, she really has focus and drive, and she's not trying to play nice just because. Um, she's really trying to make a difference. She's from here. She's lived here all her life. Um, she's a black woman that wears, you know, kicks, and I appreciate her. Um, so I definitely stand by, um, Kim Janey and, um, the work she has done thus far. Um, all right, more in the news. Three artists present personal takes on community art at the ICA. Uh, the Foster, uh, the James and Andre Foster Prize exhibition is a biannual design, um, showcase exponential artwork, uh, in support of the city's thriving art scene and one of those artists are bam, 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 Marlon Forrester. Uh, he's an amazing artist where we have interviewed him in the past. Um, his work is amazeballs. <laughs> um, and uh, we, you can check out his work um, at the ICA, which is super dope. Um, there's some other artists in there too, but you know, we like to highlight the black folks and the brown folks. Just gonna mumble under my breath and see if y'all can hear me and when I later <laughs> listen. <laughs> All right, next. Um, so school started this week. Uh, if you did not know, or if you're listening to this, yeah, you, if you're listening to this when this comes out, then you know what I'm talking about. But if you listen to it in the future, then it's dating this episode. But that's besides the point. Anyways, um, and in-person learning is returning in Boston. Um, however, there's something that I was kind of unaware of as a PPS employee um, that there was a school bus driver shortage in the city and it's um, actually you know um, caused a lot of uh, delays in schools especially for elementary and middle school um, and um, you know this is a lot of a lot of be of the marital mayoral candidates are now you know using this this um concern 
of being, um, you know, BPS parents and, um, and I believe Adriana Campbell and Michelle Wu both are BPS parents and they vow that they will, you know, make sure all of this, um, would not happen again. Um, and <laughs> the school bus driver union, um, was pushing to postpone the start of the school year, calling bus routes the worst fiasco we've ever witnessed in our careers. I am not trying to say that this is obviously I'm, I'm kind of joking, um, which I shouldn't be because this is a serious thing. And I know a lot of students rely on school buses. And yes, this was not something I was super concerned about because I do teach at a high school and not many of our students take um the school bus. Um, it's usually our special needs students that do that. Um, so yes, this is a major issue. Um, I blame Brenda as I usually do. <laughs> um, I do think that in-person learning has been pushed, um, to a point where a lot of things weren't thought out. For instance, um, at the end of the school year, Boston parents were, uh, were promised some form of remote learning option for their students. Um, and they, you know, hired a principal and some staff for that virtual school, but um, for whatever reason, um, that school did not open. So Boston parents demand more remote learning options. And um, I totally get it. A lot of students are really uncomfortable with this whole situation and parents are too. And um, as they should be, I mean, this is, it's crazy that we're we're back in school when the Delta virus is happening and, you know, it's we're having like the highest rates that we have had. And on top of it, you know, we don't have the social distance implemented in the schools anymore. We just have students have to wear masks and that's it. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to get my students to feel as comfortable as possible. Um, back at school, but it's hard. And, you know, I had, you know, a couple students on their first day of school have severe anxiety attacks because of this. Um, and it's nerve wracking to a lot of kids, especially when it comes to things like eating in the cafeteria when everyone has their masks off or, you know, just walking through the halls where um, kids aren't as supervised as they are in the classroom. Um, and there is a recent petition released by parent groups currently has more than 500 signatures trying to get, um, a virtual option for future school years. Um, so to connect to that, um, she'll also say in-person learning and, um, returns to Boston and, um, Child psychiatrists expect to see a surge of kids who need extra help. And as I was saying, um, I have seen personally, my students have increased anxiety um, through this time. And I've been trying to support them through my best ability. Um, I am offering my classroom as a space for them to eat lunch, um, a space for them to, you know, get away a little bit on my off period so I am on all day um I don't get you know mass breaks because my students really don't um I wish I wish it was different for them um I've been strategically planning things like 
For instance, next week we're going outside to draw and we're going to do landscape drawings. Um, so I think us educators are doing our best due to the situation. Um, but honestly, we were put into, we were dealt a shitty hand. Um, and lastly, again, to connect to the Boston uh, mayoral candidates face off in the first televised debate um, in Boston, um, just because... <laughs> There hasn't been this many people running before, I feel like. I, I mean, I, I I don't know what it's like to have a mayoral election in the city of Boston, you know, as a uh, Menino kid. I consider myself a Menino kid, you know. Uh, <laughs> if you grew up in Boston, then you knew uh, Mayor Menino. He probably visited your school every year or your little league practice or <laughs> a, um, a basketball game, a, a peewee football game, something like that. He showed up at everything. And now it feels so strange. Like I just, um, and then like, you know, Walsh came along and um, I still wasn't, um, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a large election there. And now this feels like the first, first one. And that's with, you know, everyone's of color, which is super dope just to see. And I'm not going to, you know, put that down, but I am going to say her grown aesthetic endorses Kim Janey, and I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> All right, let's get on to our kingpin, and we're going to talk about um, a dope artist that I discovered on Instagram, um, and that is Floyd Strickland. Um, you can find him at Floyd Strickland, Floyd underscore Strickland on Instagram. And he is a multidisciplinary artist living in Los Angeles. He grew up in Watts, Compton area during the 80s and 90s. Um, as, art, as a child, he had virtually no access to art. Um, there were no programs at school for him and no real education about the arts as a career. Um, still, he drew constantly and he depicted cartoons, comic book characters, and pictures of athletes he found in magazines. Um, and then it wasn't until he was in high school where he was introduced to painters in art history. Um, he fell in love with oil painting in the Harlem Renaissance. And he explores his own artistic expression through um, a pastiche of his experiences, his likes, um, his passions. And I think that's very clear through his work. Um, he's creating these amazing portraits where uh, there is a strong black um, subject in the center, often a child, which I find super empowering, empowering, <laughs> why can I speak? Um, and there is a darkness behind a lot of these images, but there is something kind of whimsical about them as well. Um, there are so many... Uh, references and uh, symbolism in his work um, from, you know, kids wearing Mickey Mouse t-shirts to Egyptian hieroglyphs to um, referencing, you know, African masks um, while all being a part of portraits. Um, I think he had, does have some inspiration from Kahindi Wiley. There is a lot of, um, in his earlier work, he has a lot of patterning in the background that seems reminiscent of Kahindi. Um, but there is also um, a great uh, kind of play with character. And um, 
he definitely has a variety of art and um i think that you'll understand why i chose the history moves and the connection i've made with him with his work um i think his work is gorgeous like i said uh the, the color palettes are really amazing. There's these like really dark darks in the background and then these really, you know, these like kind of crimson colors that are so bright and powerful. Um, his work is, it really like makes you look for a while. Um, you can see his play with characters and, you know, his inspiration of other artists and reflections and um yeah character design is just all over um you can see his love of you know childhood stories and um and there's there's a way that you can kind of see his work and imagine maybe what he was like as a kid um maybe he was very much inspired by um or kind of had this kind of way of being um a kid that always lived in his imagination and it feels like these subjects are in their own imaginations um many of the children he depicts um but he has you know depicted scenes of um it almost it almost looks like a, f a fight scene but it's you know uh, a group of um characters from all sorts of different networks um that you can from the simpsons to um you know family guy um to uh buzz lightyear to thing one and thing two but then um within it are these like hyper realistic uh um horses and men riding on them and you'll see it in the show notes of course um but the point is is that his work is so intricate and the details are really just beautiful um but i really think that he's he's really getting somewhere with these portraits um i mean he's a very very skilled painter that that's for sure but these portraits he's doing of these young children is just really just outstanding um you can connect with them a lot you put yourself in those kids shoes you you think of yourself when you were a child um and yeah his work is beautiful check out floyd strickland um of course there is images of his work in the show notes and check that out um and i'll i'll end with a quote from him it's my hope that my art pushes other artists to explore the depths of their creativity i just want them to know it's a viable option um so yeah, I, th I hope that's inspirational to our young artists out there, that it is a viable option. Even if you don't see the art that you're making, made by other artists, um, you can find your own, your own path, your own track through it. And I think that um, segues quite nicely into our um, History Moves. We haven't done a History Moves in a while, um, so... I decided to do one today. <laughs> um, and I want to cover the uh, art movement of lowbrow art. And I think it's a very funny um, term to call work lowbrow. And I think it's very important. I always tell my students, I think it's very important for them not only to know and identify the work, the artwork they do like and they're drawn to, as well as finding the work that they dislike 
and they do not, they're not drawn to, and finding those reasons when looking at work. Um, now, I'm not saying that lowbrow work is in, inherently bad, because um, <laughs> it's not, um, but it's an art movement with cultural roots in underground comics, punk music, tiki culture, graffiti, and hot rod culture of the streets. Um, and it's also known as, um, but it also goes by the name pop surrealism. Um, lowbrow art often has a sense of humor. Uh, sometimes the humor is gleeful. Sometimes it's like impish and sometimes it's a sarcastic comment. So of course this is a movement that is, uh, um, run by the whites. <laughs> y'all know that they could get away with you know making money off of calling their work lowbrow um whereas they've been calling black art lowbrow for a long time so um it is um something that it's mostly white folks that i did find connected to this movement but i i was able to find one um man of color <laughs> jermaine rogers he's an artist and designer who first achieved wide notoriety uh in a field of modern rock art um also known as gig poster art and um fine art production and then he has you know began his career in texas and um he was in the street art scene and his work um has been you know uh commissioned by a variety of artists um for his posters um from public enemy and the and radiohead and the foo fighters the cure the cure all right public enemy is the only really artist that i know here anyways <laughs> um his work um is viewed like as um influential the modern resurgence of gig posters the way he's connected here is that there is like this kind of pop art way of him applying um to this work um but i he's more known for his you know poster work that's what his bio is all about and blah 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 but what i found really interesting about his work is his play with um characters especially when he creates um kind of these comic book characters that are based off of artists he has this beautiful ver um comic book kind of setup of frida kahlo and andy warhol and uh you know he's he's kind of it's kind of satiric with it the two of them are kind of just in a card it looks really um fun and i would say his work is is really is really beautiful um and I thought it was interesting that his work was connected to the lowbrow um, art movement um, from what I saw. But when you look at the work of the lowbrow art movement, um, you'll see that there's like, there's a lot, um, there's clearly skill in this type of art making. It's not like, you know, it's 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 a very skillful way of drawing um and painting and making um it's just the subject can be a little goofy so check it out for yourself <laughs> check out what i'm trying to talk about here <laughs> and uh check that out in the show notes all righty 
let's get into our interview. So I had the pleasure um, of speaking to Esma, an amazing, amazing poet, author. Um, her book, Speechless, is out and available on Amazon and Trident Booksellers. So check that out. Again, those links are in the show notes for you. Um, I love that she has created visual video trailers for her writing. Um, and she also has an amazing non-for-profit that you should check out as well um, called Roya. So um, again, all our information is in the show notes. Check that out. Get into it, y'all. And uh, thanks, Esma, for speaking to me about your amazing, amazing book. I can't wait to finish it. I did get to read the first chapter, y'all, and I'm going to purchase the book and uh, finish it myself. Um, okay, hi. Um, my name is Esma Litim. Um, I'm born and raised in Boston. I am an author, a poet, um, a visionary. I am a student. Um, not currently, but I was, but I'd like to continue We're my always students. We're students no. of life. Yeah. Um, and I guess a little bit about myself. Um, I just recently published a book. Um, it's about my mother's journey immigrating to the United States. I'm really, really passionate about writing. Um, I am also a poet, so I'm really a poet first and foremost. Um, I am very passionate about being who I am. Like, I think it's really important in being yourself and not following the footsteps of other people, being your most authentic self, I think is really, really important. Um, and I just love to be able to sort of bring real life social issues um, to either the work I do, the art, in any art form. So my poetry, through my social justice, um, my nonprofit organization. Um, so I, I really just, I want to help build my community through various art forms. Um, yeah, that's based. That's really who I am. I'm Algerian. If I didn't say that before, we're very proud people. <laughs> <laughs> and I love music. So oh. I guess that's yeah. Oh, so you're like on the perfect platform. We like stand for all of that. So that's dope. Um, let's jump into our first question. And um, are you hood grown? And if so, how does that influence your aesthetic? Yeah, so I was born and raised in East Boston. Um, so I'm a Boston girl. I'm a city girl. Um, I'm that I hold that near and dear to my heart. No matter where I go, it's always that's where the from the bean. This mm -hmm. is what it is. Um, and I'm I'm very I'm very passionate about issues I see within my own community. Um, and actually, we can't, I mean, I didn't allude to this earlier, but just talking about like construction in the city, for example, like I'm really huge on talking about like the gentrification that's going on in the city and how it impacts the locals and how I've seen it impact people I know. And being from a place where I'm so, I love it so much, seeing it negatively impact the people who are from this area um, is really frustrating. And I really try to either raise awareness about it and really trying to make some type of impact and some type of change. Um, so I am Hagron. Um, and it influences my aesthetic because 
a lot of my art forms that is sort of surrounded and centered and rooted in the issues I see, like social issues that I see on a daily basis, whether it's something I experience myself or I see other people experiencing them too. And I want to be that advocate and I want to be that ally for them as well. So um, before we jump into like more about your work, um, just like a check-in, like how are you transitioning to our kind of reopen kind of uh, feel in this city? (laughs) Um, As a person and as an artist, like how is it affecting you, your work? Um, Yeah, how do you feel about all that? It's a whirlwind. It is tumultuous. Mm -hmm. It is, is it bad to say bittersweet? It's there's so many emotions that I feel and I felt and I remember, oh my God, I remember the weekend right before the shutdown officially commenced Mm -hmm. in New York. And then I remember just seeing Times Square as a ghost zone. And I'm like, we need to get out of here. This feels like the purge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, scary. And so we made it back to Boston and literally like two, three days after it was like shut down, Mm -hmm. like everything. We're all, I mean, we all experienced it. And it's kind of, it's one of those times where it's like, it's so grim, but there's some weird, like, feeling of, I want to say comfort, but knowing that everyone's experiencing it at the same time, you never feel alone in that. Um, And as a person, I feel like I went through the emotions, probably most people did, of just being locked up, feeling like you have nowhere to go. But at the same time, it also allowed me to work and perfect, not to say it's perfect, but to work on my craft. Because I remember working, you know, my nine to five and just, I have so many passions and dreams. And I used to tell myself, I don't have enough time to like maybe make an open mic or I don't have enough time to do what I want to do. And I feel like a lot of us, like we get tired from work, you're overworked, your commute might be really long and your weekends, you just want to relax. And you think about, you know, self-care, you're not going to need to care for myself. It, it's just all this going on. And I used to wish that time would stop. And for the first time it did. And I remember just thinking to myself, and this is how the book came to be, because I always wanted to write a book. Now, I remember I told my director before I left my job, this is my passion and I, like, I'm going to write a book. But it, it seemed like something I would do later on in life. And time finally stopped and I had no excuse. And that's when I decided to really tap into it because I knew that if I didn't, I would regret. And it, it allowed me to grow as an artist because I finally did have that time. And I realized that time again as you know a lot of people say is a construct and I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna focus on my priorities when I can um, and when I make time for them and I guess that's how it's affected me as an artist and how everything is coming back out like I'm excited because events are coming back up open mics are coming back up people are so excited for community engagement and being able to gather people again like we used to, that is so heartwarming. Um, it's just, again, tumultuous because you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, because the mask mandate's coming back and you're like, is this going to, are we going to have to shut down again? Or we just came off of capacity for indoor events. So how is that going to look? Um, and then you, it's hard to plan for the future when it's so you know, gray area, we don't know. Um, 
so it was just a lot of feelings, but honestly, yeah. <laughs> part of it. So <laughs> no, I totally feel that. And it's great that you were able to tap, tap into your creativity um, due to our shutdown. Um, not everyone had like the mental capacity to do that, but that's awesome that you have. And um, yeah, we'll see what's to come. And I don't think they'll allow us to shut down due to the economy, not due to, you know, the scare of people, but you know, that's my own. I don't think they're going to fully shut down, um, but I am interested to see how far they take limitations and I get it, but it's also something where it's like, all right, like, What's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there needs to be a straightforward answer, and we haven't got one at all throughout this whole thing. So, all right, let's get into the art. Let's get into the art. The reason why we're here. Let's not be in, uh, just get ourselves stressed out about our upcoming futures. Um, so, you've um, touched a little bit about your book, Speechless, and um, thank you for sharing the first chapter with me. It was really beautiful, and I can't re- wait to get my hands on a copy so I can finish it up. Um, but can you, um, just a little backtrack, can you tell me about a bit about your mother and why she is your inspiration for, um, like, such a big uh, collection of stories and also just, like, your first real book like that's that's a big deal for it to be inspired by your mother and for it to be your um first one yeah I remember I used to tell my mom like you have a story and I want to write your story um so obviously with her blessing I was able to really sit down and it's interesting because it took me three to four months of interviewing my mother and so you know, when you grow, when, when you're a kid and you're growing up, like you see your mom as your mom, right? Um, and you don't really see her any, as anything else, but your mom is somebody's daughter, right? Someone's sister. She's a friend. She's a best friend to somebody. She is her own person before she is a mother. And so it was so fascinating. I feel like I was learning so much about my own mom that I didn't even know. And honestly, I... I like my mom is in her 50s um so it was tough to get her to remember certain things which is why again it did take me a while um so I had to become like a psychologist and like ask questions in so many ways to like tap into her memory and I was like googling so many you know do all of that which is kind of funny but (laughs) (laughs) um but it really allowed me to learn her. And I feel like she was also learning herself in the process because it's easy to get wrapped up in life so much. So you kind of forget your own in a way, um, especially like growing up. And she's a woman who she doesn't forget who she is and coming to America for her, like she always stood by who she was, her identity. And it was kind of like this, piece of home that she would never let go. She never to this day will let go. And I admire her for that. And she, I mean, a lot of us again are like first generation or immigrants ourselves. I'm one of five kids and my older siblings, my, my older sister and my older brother, um, they are immigrants. And so I was the first to be born here. Um, and then my younger sister and younger brother came along after me and watching my mom just sort of go through what she went through. Like as a kid, you're, you're watching your mom do what she has to do as a mom to just raise her kids. But now that I'm older and I'm looking at her journey and I'm like hearing it firsthand from her, it's like, wow, 
I always knew you were powerful, but I didn't realize how powerful you were until I got to an age where I could understand that truly. Um, and there isn't any sort of like, you know, sugarcoating anything because you're a kid. And um, so for me, her story is really, really powerful, not only because it's about immigration, but it's about a person sacrificing everything for their kids and in turn is investing everything into their kids because that's what that's what that is. Like their children are so important to that person. And I don't want to like, I'm like trying to navigate around. So I don't like spoiler alert kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we want people to get the book. <laughs> like, how do I properly? But the story is based off of sacrifice and seeing how much she has sacrificed for her kids and her future kids at the time. Um, especially with my youngest brother, he is autistic and it's really her journey raising him to the present day. Um, so the last last chapter is a very recent story. Literally right before I was gonna like publish everything, I was like, wait, I gotta change the ending. So I changed yeah. the ending. Wow. Something that recently. And then I was like, all right, now it's done. <laughs> so dope. Um, so to go a little bit further back even, um, beyond your, your uh, or I guess, in the middle, you found your love of writing throughout this whole story. Um, uh, and like actually the fruition of it happening, not actually, not you interviewing your mother, of course, you, you've you been a writer for a while, but when did you fall in love with writing? And I know you said earlier that you uh, like always imagined yourself writing a book. And, um, but what made you decide that a book is the best medium to share your mother's story rather than poetry or another another writing form? So I discovered my love of writing when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, and I remember my teacher, she had us, it was like, it wasn't necessarily a poetry class, but we did a lot of poetry style writing. Um, and I was, I always loved like grammar. And I remember I was just, I was, I was good. And I remember I was, your girl was getting bullied. <laughs> My friends and I use that term loosely. <laughs> For me, like a teacher's pet or like a nerd or whatever, and it was just something I was so passionate about, and I loved doing it. And it like got to a point where like the teacher would like highlight my work, and I would be embarrassed because I knew people were looking at me crazy. Y'all, y'all just upset. But anyways. <laughs> That is where I discovered my love for poetry and my love for writing and words and wordplay because I'm like a super curious person. I love to learn. And which is why I said earlier, I'm a student because learning new things on a daily basis is really important to me. Um, and anytime I heard a word I didn't understand, I loved that because I just like would pull out my dictionary and write out the definition like along the sides of my composition book. And I like if that word resonated with me or if I just somehow really liked that word for some reason, um, I would write like a short poem about it or like, mm -hmm. you know, like have that be the title and, you know, do something with that. And that's sort of how everything's evolved. And to your other question, really, I, I've written, I tend to write about through my poetry. I tend to write a lot about social issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I'm experiencing something or when I'm feeling something really, really strong, I love to put it in poetry form because I want it to be something that people can listen to. And it sounds good in their mm -hmm. ear. The same when you're listening to rap, mm -hmm. like rap is poetry, right? right. It's just on, over a beat. Mm -hmm. And 
style, the style of it might be a little bit different, like the bars and um, sort of like the syllables and the flow might be a little bit different, but poetry is what you make of it. So when you listen to music and you hear like, you hear somebody like, you hear like Kendrick and you're like, wow, that wordplay. And you're, you, you think deeper into the meaning and you're like, wow, like mind blown. Like what did, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I like that feeling is what I want to give people. Mm-hmm. And because I love that feeling myself. And I have written about my mother before through poetry. Um, but I felt a book was necessary because it was able to give me so much space to really highlight her life. Mm-hmm. It, it, I would have been hard to highlight everything she's been through because this is more than just her story of immigration this is really a story for people who either maybe have autism or have kids who have autism or know somebody they love who has autism and is able to either relate feel like they're not alone um or even if a doctor reads the book and gives them some type of insight that's very important so it you can read it from so many different perspectives um, and take something away from that. And I think that was why I chose to make it a book because I wanted to include as much as I could to evoke that emotion in whoever is reading it. Um, So what was your experience creating such personal work? Um, I know you say that a lot of your uh, poetry is around social justice and of course that is personal to us all because we are dealing with that but when you're telling the story of your family it's a very personal thing um, and what is the importance of personal work made by artists do you feel like it's a form of self-care do you feel like it's a um, almost a way of um, being vulnerable to your audience what what do you think you know what's the biggest takeaways you have from um, writing such personal work I think that when it comes to art form and any type of art form, being as vulnerable as you can gives you that opportunity to connect with somebody who might be feeling the same way. It's hard to be really personal. It's not easy for everyone. Um, It could be therapeutic for people. Like you said, a form of self-care. It could be a chance for you to really showcase raw emotion, your raw talent. And... I love when somebody, and I really, really appreciate when someone is super honest and in in anything, especially in their art, because you can really feel the genuity in all of that. And I want to be as raw as possible. Um, and again, sometimes it's not so easy. I remember back, what month are we in? We're heading in, back in like February. I, I literally have, that's also back to the other question. I'm <laughs> I have no idea what month, day it is anymore. <laughs> but this is a good example. So back in February, my entire family caught COVID. And I mean, we're okay, but my dad ended up catching pneumonia due to COVID. And like he was admitted into the hospital. And it was just, it was just a super, super tough time. And I remember just thinking, like, I'm living in a koshmar, which is French for nightmare. <laughs> I'm literally like, what the, excuse my French, but what the mm-hmm. fuck is happening? I'm like, I, like, like, I get a phone call from the doctor saying my dad has pneumonia. And I'm like, right, like, what does this even mean? Because you hear of certain words and you're like, oh, I know what that means. But you're, you're, you're mm-hmm. not exactly sure. So I had to do my research. I had to talk to her about it. 
And for me, the way, the way for me to deal with that was writing. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a poem about it. And I actually posted a video about it on my Instagram. And for me to do that, like, I write about societal issues. But for me to write about something so personal, like, that took so much out of me. And not only just writing about it, but showcasing it to the world and, like, doing a video. I remember filming that. I'm like, I want to cry right now. Like, luckily he's okay. This was after the fact, but I was like, I want to cry because these words, like expressing my feelings, like my personal, personal feelings, especially about my family and showcasing that to the world. I did that because I knew that it would help people who might be going through the same. And I had a couple people reach out to me who maybe experienced a similar situation. And they said that my words helped them. And it was a way for them to relate. And it really made them happy hearing somebody else sort of talk about it in their, you know, whatever their art form may be. Mm-hmm. So that's like an example right there, because I, I, I feel like I don't write too personal, like about too many personal things, like mm-hmm. personal, I mean, like personal, you know, um, and share it with the world. But the response I got from that was very very positive and very it was very caring um and I really appreciated that and it was at that moment where I realized that when you just allow yourself to be vulnerable with other people people appreciate that um and it allows you to grow because you're doing something that you're not used to and it's sort of you're growing within yourself um and helping others too so um I think it's important to be vulnerable and to be raw um, because that is how people connect. Right. So um, we, you talked a little bit about your nonprofit at the start when you were like giving your intro, which was great. Um, can you tell me a bit about your nonprofit and what inspires and drives uh, Roya? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Roya. So um, I guess I'll give you the backstory for Roya. Um, me and my co-founder, um, Willette Hayek, she's amazing. Um, we last year, last summer, our anniversary, our anniversary just passed. But last yes. summer, out to me, thank you, uh, <laughs> about starting something where we have conversations about race, um, especially within the Arab world, and sort of talking about microaggressions and just facilitating a conversation that isn't really had within the Arab community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're like, yeah, let's go for it. So it was a five week Zoom series. It was an anti-racism seminar series that we that we did. And the response was great. Like people that we didn't even know showed up and we had honest conversations. And again, they're not, they're not easy conversations, but that's a start. Um, right. And towards the end, people were asking us what's next? Like what's, what's more for you guys? And, you know, you gotta think big scale, like what more can we do aside from the zoom session and we then at the time we were arabs against oppression that's how we kind of started um but then we realized that we it's that's not as inclusive because you know the term arab mean can mean so many different things and can look like so many different things and people might not solely identify as that um racially or you know whatever it might be so we then we got our nonprofit 501c3 um, certification. So we're like official, we were official. Um, and 
we then changed our name and recently rebranded to Roya, which is the root of that is Roya, which means vision in Arabic. So now we call ourselves Roya um, because our vision really is to educate people ad- like for advocacy, equity, really trying to make a difference in our communities. We've had um, community forums before. We had our voter registration training with uh, the National Organization Arab American Institute, um, where we're registering people to vote for the upcoming mayoral race. Um, We are having a town hall coming up. We're also having an educational series. Um, We have our Starlight Slam event that's coming up September 4th um, at the Starlight Square in Central Square, Cambridge. It's a poetry event. And our work is really a movement. Our work is really a time where we want to not only engage the community, but really make that impact and really make that difference. I think that it's, you know, it's easy to talk about it, but I think it's also really, really important to make that change and utilize your resources, utilize your connections, because somebody might not be doing as well because they don't have the proper resources, because that advocacy is not there for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Lack of resources is a problem. And a lot of people don't advocate for themselves or don't know how to, or, you know, I think it's so important to have that distribution of resources because the only way for us to really grow, and if we're talking about generational wealth, like we're up against people who have been in this country for so many centuries and have that family money. And again, it's not to say like, oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm upset because I don't have that. It's like, no, how do we get that? How do we obtain Mm -hmm. that? And how work together for that because I don't want to be at the top by myself I want to be able to share the top with everybody around me I want us all to have boats you know what I mean it's both seats (laughs) (laughs) and so that's really what our nonprofit organization is about I have a beautiful team I am so excited for the work that we're doing the work that we have coming up because we're really trying to turn this into a cultural movement. It's more than just having, you know, our community forums. It's it's really about having that change in the arts. And it's not just about the traditional nonprofit route. We are really trying to make that change um, and in so many different forms. So I'm really excited for us. Um, I'm, I'm really excited, excited for you all. And I can just like see the passion on your face right now, which is like so rewarding to know that you're like so passionate about this because it sounds like a dope project. Like so far, you guys have accomplished so much. So um, we'll make sure we uh, have all of um, your website and your, you know, all the contact information for you as well as Roya and um, the show notes because this is so dope. Um to get a little bit back on your art, um, you've created a couple of video trailers for your writing. And you also mentioned, you know, um, kind of having a visual around, you know, the performance of poetry. Um, can you explain the importance of pairing visuals with your writing? Yeah, um, I love visual poetry. Um, <clears throat> I think that if you're not, you're not somebody who just wants to hear it, you're more of a visual type of person. I love pairing the two because especially adding subtitles, I think is really important as well. Um, having captioning because it allows somebody who maybe is a visual person and wants to watch photo videos to sort of draw themselves into that. And if you want to read the text, it's there. If you want to hear my voice, it's there. So there's so many different ways for you to experience that art. And it's really meant to be an experience. And I like to sort of change it up. And I have a couple of 
projects in the works, more videos coming up. And I, I think it's important to diversify how you put your art out there. Um, and I think pairing poetry with some type of visual, whatever that looks like, adds an element to the story. Because think of it as, think of it like watching a music video, right? Like a really, really like inspiring music video. And you're like, wow, that mm -hmm. was incredible. And you hear the words, you hear the beat. And it's just this entire movie, like mm -hmm. two movie you're watching. Um, and that's all you need to get your message across. So if you can get your message across, through um, listening to poetry, through watching the poetry, because I don't need to have a, I don't need to have the captioning, right? I could just have my voice over it. But then, if somebody is more comfortable reading the poetry, I'd rather have that accessible too. Um, so I, I found sort of my love for creating the visual poetry, um, and I also find myself captivated by it when I watch like other people who have visual poetry as well. Um, so it's really about being captivating and really having that full round experience for somebody to um, sort of throw themselves into. Oh, so to go back to your book, because that's really um, what's so amazing that you have a book that's out. Um, I know like all the other stuff is amazing too, but that's like recent. So let's just make sure people get the book. Um, what do you want folks to take away from Speechless? I just want them to experience a life that's different than theirs and understand mm -hmm. because I think that there is a stigma around immigration in America. There definitely is. Um, there aren't that many sort of, I don't want to say resources, but not a lot of people know what autism is, mm -hmm. um, what it looks like. And I want it to be a learning experience. That's really what the takeaway is. I want somebody to read this book. And I've had people reach out to me and say like, I really liked your book and I learned so much. And that is what the book was for me. It was more so what can I, what should I include in this book? Let's like, even breaking it down, like what do I want to include in it? Because I'm very intentional with the stories that I tell. And I think it's so important to be intentional because I had like a whole diary plus like notes all over my computer of my mom's story. And I think the hardest part, everything was in chronological order. Like I put everything in chronological order and the hardest part was figuring out what not to leave out and what to keep in mm -hmm. because I, I wanted each story to have a purpose. And I didn't also didn't want to have standalone stories, even though that might, it might be, or might seem as standalone, mm -hmm. but there's always something that connects. Right. And there's some sort of underlying theme that is the reason why I told a story. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really want it to be a learning experience and I want people to really understand what people go through when they immigrate to a country like America. Mm -hmm. And sort of debunking that's the myths behind it and so like there's so much stigma and people don't really understand why people do what they do um and understanding perspective that is so important to me because we are all so different from each other and all we really need to do is listen mm -hmm. I think people 
like people love to talk, but it's so important to listen before you speak because you don't know what somebody is going through and you don't know why they're doing what they're doing. So that's why they say innocent until proven guilty. We want to hear what you have to say first. And so I just want this to be a learning. I just, I want it to be a learning experience and I want someone to understand somebody else's story because there are a lot of other stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to meet so many different people who have similar stories or, you know, and it's just important to have perspective. And that's what people to take away from it. So, I mean, from just talking with you over the last like, what, 20, 30 minutes, I am so excited to finish the book. Um, I'm so excited to recommend it to my fellow educators, because not only hearing the story of, um, children of immigrant parents or children that immigrated themselves. That's something that resonates with a lot of us BPS teachers deeply because we are teaching so many of those students. And on top of it, there is not much written about kids of color with autism. And I am really excited to hear that perspective um, because oftentimes kids of color, if they have any kind of learning disorder or any kind of thing that might hold them back it's looked as them acting out and they get in trouble and um it's been so much of my work as an educator to ensure that I treat you know um my black and brown kids um like you know I really see them and I'm excited to um hear how you see your brother and you know um how I can learn from that so I'm excited about that Really appreciate it. And thank you for all the work you do being an educator. It takes a lot in impacting <laughs> the kids, you know, long term. Mm-hmm. When you asked me when I first started writing, I instantly remember the teacher yeah, that teacher. loved, mm-hmm. you know, I know her name and I will never forget that. And mm-hmm. being an educator, I think, is one of the most rewarding things. Oh, yeah, for sure. In anybody's life. Oh, yeah. Like, ask anybody who was your favorite teacher growing up and they know instantly off the top mm-hmm. of their head oh, mm-hmm. favorite you know mm-hmm. like yeah yeah awesome so um it's been great talking with you and i the last question i have is what's next for you and your work and where can the people find you or more so where do you want to be found on the interweb obviously not in person <laughs> <laughs> so my address yeah <laughs> just show up pull up <laughs> <laughs> party at my house yeah. <laughs> um yeah so like i said earlier um we have some really great events coming up with roya yeah. um have our upcoming starlight slam at starlight square september 4th from six to nine we have incredible featured artists an open mic um and it's really an opportunity for community engagement networking and just really being one with everybody you know um so i'm really excited for that stay tuned i am coming out with more poetry videos more poetry to come um and different art forms i'll just add um so i guess my website people can find me at is esmalitin.com um you can also email me. Uh, my email is on my website. My Instagram is yesma, Y-E-S-S underscore M-A-A. Um, yeah. Also, I think my email is attached to my Instagram as well. So you can reach out. I'll put it yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. 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 I'm like just trying to think about 
like am i missing anything <laughs> do you have an instagram for roya or having a book talk um later this fall at west museum so stay tuned for that um and i will also be hosting a, another book talk in new york late Ooh. fall so i will keep you guys posted on that everything's still in the works so that's um sort of short-term goals mm-hmm. but definitely stay tuned yeah give us all you know the posters we'll post them we love doing yeah. that well Thanks. thank you so much for speaking with me this morning it was a pleasure and um i hope you have a good rest of your day thank you so much for having me y'all are amazing i'm so excited to hear this and just share it with the world and just continue growing as one Thanks, 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 Desma, for um, an amazing conversation, Um, not only about your book, but being so, you know, personal and telling your story. Um, And I think that this is an amazing story to tell. As as I said in the interview, as an educator, I find it extremely important to hear the stories of black and brown kids who are are autistic or have different learning abilities um because oftentimes those students are disciplined at a at a way too high level because unfortunately white educators don't understand or have seen exactly what uh it looks like in a black and brown student it looks like defiance rather than you know the signs of autism or whatever it may be um, so I look forward to finishing Speechless, and I um, I really encourage everyone to, to purchase it and um, get into this story. It's an amazing, amazing story. All right, so let's get on to Word on the Street. I mean, well, eh, eh, where are we? Where's my segments? I can't get it. You know, I've been doing this, I've been doing this uh, podcast now for, uh, what, four years now? Jeez. <sighs> I'm getting old, y'all. And um, you would think I would know these segments by now. Anyways, let's get into what's the word of one. Um, again, spoiler galore when it comes to Candyman. If you haven't seen it, don't listen to us. If you have seen it, then get into it and uh, tell us your opinion. Um, if you don't plan on seeing it because you're a scary cat, um, then you can definitely listen to it and hear our take on it. Um, and hear that it wasn't that scary, so you'll be all right. Um, so let's get into it, Vaughn. because this is take two um we had a quick little glitch but um we're back at it so i'm excited to chat with you uh in our pre-spooky season month of what's the word with Vaughn, and um we're starting to celebrate aren't we yes get your hoodies out get your <laughs> layers out it is time folks i know me for one i am a fan of layers 
I mean, <laughs> I'm more of a fan of the summer, but the layers, you know, you get the vibes, mm-hmm. you get the um, what's the what's the, the plaid, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. plaid out, you know. Yeah, so, I like you know. I also like the warm colors of the fall, like the browns and the oranges and all that jazz. It's a nice color palette. I feel uh-huh. like September hit and it's just over. It's just oh yeah, it's fall. <laughs> I have some pumpkins in my house already. I'm 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 turning into that person. Um, so it's okay. Uh, but more importantly, spooky season um, brings us great films right and uh it's a visual arts podcast we like to talk about films here because this is a medium we don't necessarily know much about in the making but we do appreciate (laughs) we do we do do binge watch yes (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i've been building up i've been building up the courage you know i usually don't mess with the scary movies um i have but this was a cultural like icon oh yeah i had had this so we saw candy man um say my name say my name (laughs) (laughs) um and what's your first impressions you go first i feel like i have some controversial thoughts (laughs) okay so for me we're coming off of like I'm I haven't seen the old ones. Oh. You know, this is like straight off of just being a Jordan is it Jordan Peele? Mm-hmm. He was the um executive producer. Yeah, he was the executive producer. Like just coming off of that energy of just understanding that like there's gonna be a mind fuck in here somewhere. I know there's going to be some scary stuff, but I know there's going to be a deeper thought and deeper meaning into these things. So I'm coming off of that energy and also trying to, you know, work on the courage of these spooky movies. So for me, I I enjoyed it. I mean, I feel like there were so many layers um, as far as just the strength of a Black woman and what she has to go through and the trauma that she grows up with and you know, it's like, um, it's just speaking to me, you know, because it's like the men that she chooses in her life and just, you know, I don't know. So there's that part. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the obvious of the police brutality and us versus them type of thing that that was brought up to surface. I enjoyed that. And then just the acting. I mean, the acting. I mean, I, I give the movie... I give the movie nine out of ten. There was some some little parts that that didn't connect too well. Um, but it, yeah, Maybe you could pick it up. I was just like, mm. we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. <laughs> okay, I can overlook. Like you're lucky. I can overlook that a little because <laughs> all this other stuff was good. But I I enjoyed it. Um. I'd have to say, uh, if I had to pick, like, my favorite part, I, I don't know, it's so random, but it's when he went to the, um, when he went to the critic's house, that lady's house, uh-huh. and how so, she was, like, she was really talking shit at the first show. She thought, she thought she knew something about the process of gentrification. She really thought she did. Right. And as a white woman talking to a black artist, trying to talk down to him as an artist, saying that he is the problem being an artist what is the problem of gentrification. When in actuality, yes, artists are the kind of, yes, the first wave of gentrification. However, 
That is the system that was built around them. It is not the artist's actual power that's doing that. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, I, I... a different tune, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And then when he was like, "I dare you, I mm-hmm. dare you, sing," I was like, "Ah, yes, yeah. say it, say it." <laughs> um, so I was very excited to see this movie. Um, I'm a fan of the um past Candyman, um, and the Books of Blood, uh, but. And is also directed by a black woman, which I was very excited to see. So I'll start with the pros and then I'll go into the cons. <laughs> Let's do that. We'll we'll go in happy and then we'll we'll discuss. So the director is Nina DaCosta. Um, she is, I think, the first black woman to have a number one um like movie in the country, which is redonkulous. So um kudos to her, and I won't take that away from her at all. It was also produced by um, Jordan Peele and some other folks. I don't know. I don't know who they are. <laughs> and um, um, it is a part of the Monkey Paw production. So obviously I'm so into Jordan Peele and his work that I had to see it. Yeah. Um, I did watch it at a drive-in. So it gave me a different kind of like feel. It was cute. It was very spooky, you know. Um I love the aspect Mm -hmm. of the Black art, you know, the aspect of it felt very much in the art world. It was very much them, you know, bringing up like kind of little tidbits of um, what it's like to be an artist and what it's like to kind of navigate through the art world. So in that way, me and my partner were laughing because he's a painter. So the two of us were kind of like in that way, it was very entertaining toward, um, toward, for us. And I think that it would be very entertaining for many artists in that way. Um, there was a light aspect to it. There was definitely that. But it felt like the first half of the story was very, like, kind of build up. And then, like, the ha- second half was, you know, where the action started happening. Um, and this is, I guess, where I get to my critiques. Um, um, I was a little disappointed that they never truly showed a murder. It felt like you saw some of them in the reflection, you saw the after effects, but you never saw things in the process. Wait, Uh, what do you mean? It was like you could see the feet of people and then they would drop to the ground. You would see like when the first girl got killed in the gallery, you didn't you saw her like him go, but you didn't see actually the Candyman. You saw like a just like it wasn't a full shot. Right. You, you, get get <laughs> you didn't <laughs> get the full feel, right? No, that was perfect. Yeah, we don't need to see that. No, I think you do. I think you need to see some of it. <laughs> um, two. This isn't necessarily a critique, but it is an observation. Okay. Candyman only killed white folks. Now, I'm not saying that's a problem. I think that's fine. No, he killed that black girl. He killed the his, his sister, remember? Oh, yeah. Disclaimer. We're killing. We're, if yeah, you saw yeah, the movie, yeah. we're killing it for you right yeah, now. We're killing it. We're killing it. Um, killed his sister, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. Little girl in the back. That is true. But that was like the old one and not the new one. No, well, no, like, no. Not, well, like, yeah, that was the one back in the day that he knew about. You're right, you're right, you're right. Um, but it felt like the, all the like recent kills in the movie were all white folks. 
Not to say that that's a bad thing. Um, and, but that's a message, though. Yeah, no, no, no. That was a message. But then, it, yeah, like you said, there was a lot of lot of things that were just gapped and missing, right? For instance, when, you know, um, when Yaya, right? That's his name, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when Yaya just becomes Candyman. <laughs> um, it's kind of unclear how he just doesn't have feeling anymore, how he can just like they cut off his hands so effortlessly and he did not flinch. You so know? I got you, I got you on this one. I got you on this one, right? So he was the baby. I know the other, right. So I think it was the spirit you know there was this battle internally that it was the candy man and him fighting and i think the mm-hmm. candy man won and just yeah. possessed him i think yeah that was clear at the very end when you saw actually the old candy man's face like appear over his face and it was clear that that was him the whole time and it was great how at the end you know, you were able to use Candyman in your power. That's what it felt like towards the end. Rather than him coming after you, you could use him against others. And um, and it kind of felt like that in a way too, that like, like in that bathroom scene, like the girls were bullies and that's kind of why they got attacked and the black girl was able to just like chill, like not chill, but she was- And the there. Asian girl dipped. Did you yeah, know Yeah, she dipped. Yes, that's why I was like, no- <laughs> I, think, I honestly think so here when I saw that part right when I was like when I mean they ruined it in the trailer that the black yeah. girl was going to be in this doll but if you look at it right like I feel like in Asian culture black culture and maybe in white culture I'm I'm not familiar but there are these like um <laughs> there's like superstitions right there's like these this fork this folklore that like they follow that like you just don't play with you just you just don't do certain things don't sweep my feet don't cross the pole okay don't knock down the salt you know these there's these things yeah you're right you're right and i feel like those people Mm -hmm. they like to test it they don't they don't believe in it they want to experiment it they want to diagnose it they want to do all these things yeah, black folks are definitely super. Like, yeah, black folks are definitely super super superstitious. For instance, like when he talked to his mom and she was, and he said Candyman, Candyman. She said, "Shh, don't say that." Nope, <laughs> not not. Not, she not. Said, not in this house. Like, don't do that. And um, even his girl. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, then she said it. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we're spoiling the whole movie, so watch it for sure. <laughs> um, I think the whole thing. Yeah. I think that I'm definitely going to watch it again. Um, I obviously had like crazy high hopes. I thought it was going to be like the next us. That's what I wanted it to be like a movie that I can watch over and over again and still be like frightened and like intrigued and find little clues. And I might, I might. Right. Um, But I definitely want it. But yeah. you know, but, but you know, it's okay because something else has been scratching that itch for me, and that's been American Horror Stories. You like that sequel? Yep. Yep. That transition. Okay, okay, I see you. <laughs> yes. Segue. <Segway>. Segue. <laughs> American Horror Stories has never failed me. 
they have always been able they give they give that same type of adrenaline i would say to black mirror mm-hmm. i'm comparing it to black mirror i mean there's this like i i'm constantly like okay next episode i'm ready i'm ready and i'm like constantly just intrigued i mean i i'm really happy with this they did something different with the yeah. different stories yeah because it's american some- horror stories this season versus american horror story you know yeah, yeah. ies that different <laughs> um and uh it has been obviously a favorite of mine as well i've watched it since season one so i've been an avid fan um but this season feels very, you know, current in a lot of ways, more than the other ones have. Um, in a sense that it feels very like, you know, like social media is a big part of it. Uh, I don't know, tech is a big part of it. And that's why I think you might be feeling that Black Mirror feel um, as well this season. Um, but yeah, it's it's been great. I loved it. I watched every episode. Um, yeah, I won't give away everything with this one. <laughs> but I think it was um, a great season so far. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's great. It's been great so far. Yeah, it's been good. Um, you mentioned that you saw your movie in the drive-in and we talked about that episode. I'm just like, so this is the thing. I love American Horror Stories, story, stories, <laughs> but they low-key, they have ruined a couple of things for me, <laughs> okay? I, I, for a good while after season one, didn't believe, because this was when I was back in school, back in college, mm-hmm. for a good while, I don't know why. I mean, obviously, I knew that they were real, but for a good while, I was like, are the people in my on my floor in my in my dorm like? <laughs> like I was like, can I leave? It was just it just really messed me up. Like I just couldn't. I had a hard time believing that people were just real for a good for a good while. And now we're coming back to the old school drive-ins, and now that's ruined for me. One of the episodes they just it's just done. Um, I will I will eventually get to a point where we could get there but for me I'm just right now I can't do it and you mentioned an episode and I think it's a great episode and it shows how much um horror shows and you know the horror community is changing and now um kind of reconciling with the fact that they have not represented black and brown people much and black person always dies first that's always a thing that has been a trope for a very long time in films and it was great to see in that episode of American Horror Story that we're referencing episode three I believe um it it has two a black couple a young black couple and they survived through the end and uh they definitely are it's it's going crazier at the end it kind of has a cheesy ending but um <laughs> They, they make it to the end-ish. Uh, Honestly, if, that's, if that's not love, I don't know what it yeah. is. If you can't help me kill the zombies <laughs> and hold it down, then I don't know. I don't want you. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great series. And I think that's, like, obviously revving us up for the season. Um, 
And I don't have a good segue for this because this is just sad news. Um, yeah. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Michael K. Williams, uh, the American actor, um, best known for his work in The Wire. Um, uh, I mean, the list goes on. I, uh, but I mean, Boardwalk Empire and especially um, what we have covered a lot of, and that's Lovecraft Country, you know, um, yeah. and talked a lot about a lot about. Um, I really appreciated his character in Lovecraft Country. Um, I really appreciated his character in The Wire. And I mentioned both of those roles in particularly because I think as like a queer person, a queer brown person, I think it's important to see different kinds of queer brown folks in different ways. And um, not to say that he was, he, he's an actor and he played roles, but the roles that he played, I feel like he did in a really respectful way. And he really showed different aspects of what a black gay man could look like. Um, and I think we should really honor him for what he's done for the black community, what he's done for the LGBT community. Um, and yeah, his- And his, his work, I mean, the thing is for me, when I, when I watch a movie, I look at so many different aspects of it camera angles mostly I I'm always like how do they get that 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 clip right there but when I look at the actor right I always look at them and I'm like I really believe that this person is who they're playing like even when they're out of the movies and you see them like at the award show or they're doing a post like mm-hmm. you know what I mean I could see them as that character I mean different characters but like you think of Michael K. Williams and you think good actor. You know, I think of those that the group of those fine men, yeah, yeah, what is Dameson Idris, the one who played in Snowfall? Um, what's another fine man? I don't know, Idris Alba. You know, you you think of he's in that group, and it's just dark skin, beautiful men. Exactly. <laughs> exactly and it's talented men like so shocking to have opened up my phone and to see that because I'm like what like he was he's not done yet he wasn't done yet I know I I don't know that personally but in my heart I felt like he that he could have been in so much other things too like continue to bring that good energy just like how Denzel have been has been doing for all these years you know what I'm saying yeah and I mean like He's been a great dramatic actor, a great comedic actor, a great action actor. I mean, like, he does everything. He's fucking, he's great. So. And I know everybody is going to want to know how, how, how. And I just, mm-hmm. I just really pray that it's, it's not related to drugs. I just really hope it's, like, just natural, maybe, or. You're so young, though. It's just crazy. How old was he? Um, he was. He was born in '66, so he's the same age as my dad. So he's like 54. 
54. Yeah, that's too young. Mm. That's too young. Um, yeah, I just got mad dark in my apartment. Whatever. Let's keep going. <laughs> um, so I don't want to end on sad news. So let's add on some fuckboy shit because... <laughs> you know, I'm are you, to you go first because I'm always down to ration nigga and let's go. <laughs> I have a different perspective. You do, you do. And as a as a as a woman that um I believe in monogamy. I'm sorry. Like I'm a jealous bitch. If I'm I'm the only I need to be the only one. I just can't do that. I don't have I don't have the the brain capacity for anything else. Like, I wish I could be poly or something, but, like, it's just not for me. Um, That being said, I also believe that women are not the problem when it comes to the reason why our population is so, so high outrageously high that you know that's why our earth can't stand it and that's why we have just to wrap it up that's why we have hurricanes in jersey now um you know it's because we have too many fucking people on this planet and the reason why we have too many fucking people on this planet is because of whom men men they are solely the reason guess why a man what? could have sex with a hundred women over a hundred days and get a hundred <laughs> women pregnant and produce a hundred babies. A woman can have sex with a hundred men over a hundred days and she could only possibly have one pregnancy <laughs> during that year, really. Yeah. So that being said. I mean, dang, when you when you say it like that, I mean that are the problem. And to think that having a child with one woman is a Eurocentric way of living is honestly like it sounds primitive. And I don't use that word in a light way. And I'm not saying that the opposite of Eurocentricity is primitive. That's not what I'm saying. I don't view monogamy as a Eurocentric thing. Yes, there is a lot of cultures that are a lot more freeing, you know, and they believe in like the community and understanding that it takes a village to, you know, raise children. But those folks aren't having four or five children in a year. Like whom? Nick Cannon. The man we are talking about right now. The dummy. The man is dying. Okay. okay. That doesn't mean you need an army of children. <laughs> dying. We're all dying, Vaughn. We're all dying slowly. We all have. A little bit. Okay. We so all are, we're all dying, Vaughn. We're all he's dying. dying. A lo- he's dying a little bit faster than, than we are. He has enough children already. He has, he's financially stable, okay? He is supporting, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know the details. I'm sure we can look it up and see if there's any paperwork. But he's 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 providing some stability, okay? And for every, for I feel like there's so many Black men out here, so many of us dying. I feel like Nick is saving us, okay? He's saving us. 
And poor baby mamas, you don't need all this. He's almost catching up to future. And I think the Eurocentric thing, okay, okay. I feel like, all right, all right. I'm probably going to be judged with this, but I got to say it. I got to say it. I just feel like we're stuck. I feel like, I don't even want to say like this, this generation. I don't know. I feel like we're confused. Okay. I feel like we're looking at two different examples and like, it's not even about choosing one side or the other. It's about doing what's right for you and what you're comfortable with and what you and your partner can agree with and be on the same page with. I think some of us are taking a lot from our grandparents, you know, that day and age where it was like the woman's in the house, you know, do with the man, you know, there was a lot of laws around that because women couldn't have bank accounts. You know, they couldn't have certain things without a man. Right. And then here we are on this independence thing. These, these powerful single moms who just been able to flourish and do their thing. You know what I mean? And I think majority of the women, not all, not all, they're like battling. They're like, I want to be submissive, but I also want to have my own shit, you know, Oh, he's cheating on me, whatever. But polygamy, like, it's just, it's just a lot going on. All right. It's a lot going on in the Eurocentric thing. Let's not forget like that was all about property from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, the woman was the property. The man married the woman and inherit property from like her family. Like that was like a whole thing. Right. And I think maybe the jewelry, the blood diamonds. I don't know. There's a lot going on here. But, I just but I'm not saying that monogamy just because I believe monogamy doesn't mean that I'm like pro marriage. You know, there's like a difference. Okay. Right. I'm not yeah. saying that you got to be legally bound to a person, but I think you should be morally connected to someone and like, you know, not have seven kids when you're only like, you know. But can't you have different connections with different people, you know? Can't you have Yeah, but you don't have to have kids with every person you connect with. <laughs> the you man don't. is dying, okay? I, I really don't understand this as an argument. Everyone <laughs> dies. That doesn't mean you need seven children. I like Nick Cannon. I'm just biased. I mean, like, yeah, I've been a fan of him since, like, you know, Nickelodeon days. All that jazz. Loved him. But, like, I'm going to say it, and this might be controversial, I'm a Mariah Carey stan, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Not Mariah Carey. Yes, I am. That is a biracial queen, and I stand by her. I still haven't I, seen her parents. What her parents look like, I'm not too sure. She's biracial. Don't do <laughs> All right. I'm still and, and that's like his first baby mama. And I don't appreciate him stepping out and doing all this crazy shit after he had twins with a goddess. Come on. It's like, what? Huh? Huh? What do you need more? I would just hope that these women that he did have babies with, there was just an agreement and not just him saying like, oh, I'm about to just impregnate all y'all like i would i would just hope that they're all on the same page and they're all just you know living happily ever after because in a world where men are controlling or having input on women's bodies i would just hope that this example 
of Nick Cannon is just something that's like I just I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear a scandal after this. That's that's just how I feel. I just don't want to hear anything crazy that the baby mamas is on live talking talking shit about Nick Cannon and all that. You know, that's just where I'm coming from. I just hope it's healthy and happy. Yeah, I I don't think it will become some uh um wanted on the track shite bullshit because that's <laughs> it. That, that was, was gross. Um, but he also should have known that, like, he was. Summer Walker clearly has to deal with her own mental health issues. I had high hopes for them, though. She needs to do that. But um, yeah, she needs to stop feeding her baby honey. Um, that's not good. Um, but yeah, like to wrap it into, you know, yeah, the, the new abortion laws in Texas, like you kind of mentioned, it's kind of wild how much women's bodies are regulated in such a way and men are able to really do what they want um and you know have as much children as they want when they want um and yes wait wait wait. can i play devil's advocate real quick though what that men don't get to choose when a woman has an abortion no but like we were talking about overpopulation, right? Like, mm-hmm. Texas has the answer. How? No, they don't. Never mind. <laughs> they always have the answer. They're yeah. saying if a 15-year-old gets raped, she has to have the baby. If she doesn't know right. that she got pregnant. Sorry, and scratch that. she takes an Uber to the abortion clinic, the Uber driver is getting locked up, too. It's Ooh. fucking ridiculous. You come to Boston, you know? Just yeah, trying. and like the federal government saying that they're trying to support, you know, Texans and finding, you know, legal ways for them to get abortions. But Texas is st- turning into a crazy fucking, you know, their own fucking state. I mean, their own fucking country. They might as well become one because this is this is so uh, once again, I'll use the word primitive to believe that we can regulate women so, so much. Yet, we can't regulate folks to wear masks in public places. And we choose like in Florida and in Texas where they started schools and did not have the students wearing masks. And as the school year approaches us, I guess I want to kind of end it here um, that a mandate to wear masks is a mandate to save others' lives. It is not uh, a way to bog bog down on your rights, your human rights, your American rights. It is simply a way to protect those who are more vulnerable. I think it's just as important as washing hands, like your hygiene. That's how I feel. Like, just wear the mask. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't don't understand why there's such a big controversy about it. I mean, they've come up with so many different designs that you can you can breathe through it now. You can make it look cute. I mean, I I did see one thing where this little kid was like writing these cute messages on it. I don't know about writing on it, but you know, finding the proper fit and design. You know, I'm all for it. I just I'm shocked. I was just telling my mom actually that I can't even believe that like colleges are like moving kids in. Like kids are like 
coming from countries and all that and like living together oh girl as a mission hill resident baby girl i've been stressed all this week as college students have been moving in and out of mission hill they have trashed our neighborhood the way that they just throw out trash when they're done moving is fucking ridiculous um the garbage men deserve a raise over the end of october august to the beginning of september like that core time they deserve it and it should be taxed from whom the colleges because (laughs) someone needs to pay for this and it shouldn't be us um i think I, I talk about this often, but I feel like a lot of college students are, you know, an infestation on our communities. And um, I think a lot of them need to stay on campus. Uh, like I said, these colleges are getting too big. They're owning way too much of our cities. Um, there's ways for them to spread out and without, you know, buying up historic buildings and doing all these other things that they continue to do um and as an employee of a college not too far down the street just laying it on them. um i'm very critical of this and you know the college students are not wearing masks as they walk down the street they're not doing these types of things um i'm hoping that they're much safer in their classrooms I know I will be on my students uh, as they start on Thursday, uh, making sure they wear their masks, but also making sure they feel comfortable in the classroom. And that's number one. Um, I know a lot of our students are just not comfortable um, during this time. Some of them might be really comfortable. Other ones might be having panic attacks until Thursday, (laughs) even on Thursday, you know, um, a lot of them are scared. They don't want to do this. Um, I'm just just glad I'm out, man. Cause honestly, I'd, I'd be one of the students that have anxiety. Like I just completely all of the social events, like all of the things that like built around physically being around other people and like having that connection with your friends and with your professor, those one-on-ones and like all of that. I just, I can't, no, I'm going virtual. Like, mm-hmm. I can't even believe. Yeah, that's not an option. Not an option. Mm-hmm. So um, we hope everyone stays safe in the beginning of this school year. Um, to all of our friends that are starting a school, um, I might have called you an infestation, but do your best to be a good gentrifier. Um, if you're listening. And for our high schoolers that are listening, um, good luck, prosper, and you all are um, one of a kind and outstanding to be able to go through a pandemic and thrive. Um, So kudos to you. I don't think I could do it. Um, I'm super proud of my students and I can't wait to start and hanging out with them and teaching them again. And those teachers get those lesson plans in. Yeah, <laughs> I already got all 10, my first 10 units plans because a girl got it. <laughs> I'm staying on top. Yeah. All right, y'all. So we'll be back with the spooky season next next month. We'll actually be celebrating it. So we'll mm. see what we bring to you. And uh, bye, Vaughn. It's been good talking to you. Bruce. Bye. All right, y'all. If you um, watched me and Vaughn talking 
um, on YouTube, then you'll probably notice how I started the, the chat um, in kind of the daylight and then it went to darkness super quick <laughs> in that 30 minutes of us chatting. Um, so, you know, I'm still there. The glare is in my glasses. You'll see me. Um, you'll see the light behind my head. Um, <laughs> um, I just didn't want to pause. We were having such a good talk. I didn't, I didn't care to, you know, put lights on. Um, I didn't think about it. Um, I saw this meme recently that uh, millennials, when we don't have folks over our houses, we kind of just um, have all the lights off and uh, use our phone light like we um have a lantern like we're old-timey tenants <laughs> and um that's kind of true right now um i don't keep my lights on <laughs> when i don't have people over um i'll find the need to i know where things are in my home <laughs> um but maybe next time i'll keep my lights on for you all when i record videos <laughs> my bad Anyways, this was episode 112. Um, I hope you got into it. I hope you learned something about some artists. Make sure you check out artists like Raphael Pavarotti. Make sure you check out the Team Empowerment, Boston, and the Somerville location. Um, make sure you vote. The mayoral uh, primary is happening soon. Vote, vote, vote. Also, check out the work of Floyd Strickland, an amazing, amazing painter. Um, and, you know, check out lowbrow art and see how lowbrow it is and what your definition of lowbrow is. And, of course, uh, check out Speechless by Esma Litham. And, um, you know, check out uh, Vaughn's work. Um, and remember to subscribe to I Got You because she got you when it comes to events in the city. All right, y'all. It's been real. Peace and love. And oh, yeah, I said I was going to be sappy at the end. Let me get sappy real quick. All right. <laughs> so um, it was our first week at school. Um, I miss my students um, greatly. And it warmed my heart so much to find out that they missed me, too. <laughs> and I am about to cry because <laughs> um, it is clear that um they have grown a lot without me but it is also clear that um i have impacted them even the little i have known them this is my third year at the high school and uh my freshmen are juniors you know my sophomores are seniors um i've already seen two groups of students that i've connected with a lot um graduate so um i'm excited for this year i know there's a lot of anxiety amongst my students as i said but it is just great to have them in the building it's great to um see their joy again um to see them laugh again <laughs> to see their faces oh my god why am i crying <laughs> I am such a sap. I hate this about me. Anyways, <laughs> I just love my students so much. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do when I become a mom because I love my these students so much. I would like die for them. So I like <laughs> the love I have for my kids. I can't even imagine the ones I birthed. Golly. 
Speaking of which, my students already got at me. They were like, miss, it's been 18 months. You didn't have a baby yet. I said, what? <laughs> oh, it's going to be 18 months. Y'all, they were like, you could have had two sets of pregnancies. But I said, what? All right, relax, relax, relax. Um, so I do love them, but they do be rushing my life. And um, they do think I'm old. So there is that. However, I love them so much. Um, and if any of my students are listening, I love you. Um, Miss Bennett loves you. You know this. All right. <laughs> I'm done being a sap now. All right. Bye, y'all. Um, this was, you know, episode 112, September edition. We'll be back to y'all in October. The real spooky season. My favorite season of the year. All right. <laughs> Bye, y'all.